TheOAMNetwork.com. Power to the podcast. Hello and welcome to the Bike Nerds Podcast, episode 106. Sarah, how are you doing today? I'm fantastic. I'm reporting from Memphis, Tennessee. Yeah. With Edwin by my side. Nice. Welcome, outdoors. welcome, Edwin, to the podcast. Hopefully, uh, we won't know he's here. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, you and I have been in like technology purgatory for the last five days. Uh, we got on to record a couple days ago. The recorder wasn't working. I wanted to tell you what, what happened, actually. I'd love to know uh, what happened because your purgatory is different than mine. Mine is more just empathy and sympathy <laughs> for all of the work that you do that I don't understand. Well, the truth is I don't know what happened. There was just an update that the recording software didn't get, and it was published like the very next day. So you and I were just like a day early to the recording game. It like oh, it fixed it. It fixed life. itself. Yeah. Once it, in our life, we were early. We were early, um, but I'm glad to uh, have you here today. How's the weather in Memphis right now? It's getting a little cold here in Colorado. It's cold here. It's like one of those weird days where it's like a low, like 28, and then it'll be like 50 degrees, but the sun's out, so I'm, I'm zero complaints. Excellent, excellent. Yeah, yeah, I woke up this morning and it's only 30 degrees out, and it feels. I don't know how many. Ja- I think I just need one jacket today. That's nice. Uh, it's a good feeling. Yeah, yeah. Minimal layers. It's been in the teens, and that's been chilly, chilly, chilly bike rides to work every morning. Any snow? Uh, no, not recently. Um, it's been a couple weeks since we had some snow, so it's been sunny but cold. This is our last episode of 2018. See you later, 2018. Ooh. Sayonara. Sayonara, 2018. So we've got a couple weeks break coming up. And, uh, you know, here we are with like the end of year show spectacular. Yeah. And it's kind of spectacular because we have an announcement to make. We do? Yeah. Make it. So Kyle and I are going to be working together at People for Bikes. Mm-hmm. I have accepted a position with People for Bikes. Yeah. And I'm moving my family of a husband and two dogs to Denver in four days. Yes. We've got all the weather waiting for you. I can't wait. And I cannot wait to be connected to my co-host in personal and professional life. Probably not recommended, but we're doing it. We are doing it. So, whew, that's a lot to take in. You just sort of like casually breezed by all that. Did you think I was going to present <laughs> it in another way? I Well, it, it, because this is the year-end show spectacular, I was expecting a dance number and a song. Oh, I dan- I've danced here. I know. So no one can see it. <laughs> I've got my I've got my piano right here. I'll just whip yeah. up a little okay. duty for you to <laughs> sing along to. Um, I am really excited, Sarah, to have you join the team. 
We are really as excited. We are crazy. We have a lot of amazing stuff happening and I'm excited to have, you know, the opportunity to sit next to you and work with you instead of just podcasting with you. Yeah, it's, I really am honored to be working for such a great organization and I'm excited really of all the things that you just said to take the work I've been doing in Memphis and do it all across the country. Wow. Wow. What's it, uh, what's it been like preparing to leave bike share? That's, that's been your baby for so many years. It's my baby. It's been bittersweet in terms of the commitment I've made really on a personal level to Memphis and to providing a positive attitude and a skill set to improve Memphis on a daily basis. So that's been bittersweet. Memphis is the longest place I've ever lived. I've lived here for a decade now. Um, and so I'm used to relocating. I get the new job and the moving around piece. That part I'm comfortable with and really excited for. But Memphis is home and is really a part of a really cool renaissance that we're seeing around similar similar cities. So that part is bittersweet. And then we've got really great friends and family here. So from a quality of life, you know, people that you can laugh with and cry with and not talk to and catch up easily with, you know, that's all bittersweet, but it's all really exciting. So it's really exciting, but you know, it's moving, right? It is moving. How, how has that process been? Oh, that's easy. Is it? Yeah. I, well, I think without poten- potentially without kids, Oh and yeah. Stuff. Yeah. I mean, we didn't even fill an entire pod. <laughs> oh yeah, like, you half you've the got pod it good. Was probably bites. Like <laughs> we, we live very minimal. We don't have a ton of stuff. So that part, Corey may have a different perspective. He may have done more of the heavy lifting and mm-hmm. packing of things, but he's yeah. not here. So from my perspective, it was a piece of cake. Or is what you're saying that you don't have a Star Wars room that you had to pack up? Exactly. <laughs> Uh, and it also, you didn't move in the middle of the summer. Correct. <laughs> yeah, I think I think both of those things might change your perspective yeah. on moving a little bit. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, you know, when we moved, the Star Wars collection was the first thing I packed, and it was the first thing I put on the truck. But then it's the last thing that leaves the truck. Yeah, I know, but I just wanted to make sure that anybody opens the back of that truck and tries to take something, they get, like, the Chinaware and not the Star Wars collection. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, gosh. Yeah, so we found a place. We'll be living in Denver. We oh, excellent. depart this Saturday, the 15th. We stop in Junction City, Kansas. That's our halfway point. Wow. And then we are Denver residents. Ooh, good. Well, I'm going to be there to help you unload. Which I greatly appreciate. I secretly hope that Corey has most of it done before I get there. <laughs> But Actually, I'll, a lot of it will be done. But I'll be there. I'll be there for <laughs> sure. Um, so, yeah, so I also think it'll be exciting to see what happens with the podcast, with you and I being in the same state and city again. I tell you the first thing that's going to happen is I'm getting rid of all of this technology. <laughs> Trash the, these old mics. Because <laughs> I'm just sick of updates <laughs> and software. Um, and I need something that is like I can plug it in and I can just record. Wouldn't that be nice? That would be nice. Oh, <laughs> uh, So, yeah, I think it's going to be I think it's going to be good. You know, I I sort of secretly think that even though we're going to be closer together and the opportunity to 
podcast together will probably be more frequent. I don't think it's going to quite be like an everyday kind of thing. No. Um, I'm, you know, I'm traveling a lot. I think you're going to be doing the same and I'm not sure that we're going to be in the same place all the time. So, you know, I think the, I think a lot may kind of remain the same aside from, uh, fixing, fixing this, uh, software and equipment issue for the next couple of weeks. Can't um, wait to see what new technology has in store for us. But I, but I do think this, it's going to be interesting to think about the guests, the topics that we cover, the questions we ask. Since we're going to be in the same space, it feels like maybe some of our thinking, uh, our logic, uh, the re- the reason that we ask certain questions or don't ask other questions, that might become a bit more in sync. Um, just yep. because we're sort of having these discussions in between, um, you know, talking to guests. So, um, yeah, I'm. I'm super excited about it, and uh, and I know that our uh, listeners are as well. Can I mean, I can hear the excitement I, preemptively from the internet. I think that was the recycling truck outside my house. <laughs> <laughs> that, yeah. I, have a, I have a question for you. So this episode, not to have any spoilers, is a reflection of 2018. Do you have any topics that people requested or you had on your brain that you weren't able to get to this year hmm yeah there there definitely was there were there were some guests that, and I know you had this too that we were trying to get on the show we just couldn't make schedules work certain times and so we're going to continue to do that we've got we have a list of topics and guests that listeners have recommended to us that we've been reaching out to so i you know i think there's some there's some leads already in place there and some communication already happening but you know there was there was one particular topic that i just um i i couldn't find quite the right guest or multiple guests to really sort of talk about it and it's something that i'll that i'll probably renew in 2019 and it's just a discussion about structural racism and um from a infrastructure perspective and yep. you know i'm just trying to find sort of like the right person or persons to really sort of go down a, a little bit of a rabbit hole with that but that's that's like top of my list still um in terms of like things that i didn't get done in 2018 but meant to what about you? I would echo that there's definitely folks that I look forward to having on the podcast. And then something you and I have, I think, talked about since the beginning is how do we create opportunities where interviews are done by not Kyle and or Sarah? How do we present a totally different lens and perspective with questions and listening for episodes on the podcast. So that's something I'm looking forward to, whether it's 2019 or I don't know when, but giving the opportunity for there to be other co-hosts, special co-hosts to come in and lead the conversation and select guests that potentially are out of our network. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And maybe, and maybe just for fun, we could, um, we can continue to work on a certain Zach Morris uh I'm coming on the podcast talking to you mike <laughs> zach morris hello we didn't forget <laughs> um, he does he actually has a name mark john gossler yes correct is that right maybe that's how we get him as we treat him like an actual human being and not a saved by the bell character um no it's mark paul gossler not mark john mark paul 
Well, let's hope he doesn't listen to this episode and we'll get it right. I don't next think episode. I don't I don't think he listens. I know. <laughs> uh Sarah, I have put together a little um you know, you mentioned this earlier, but I've put together a, sort of a little montage of all of our interviews from 2018, um, which, by the way, are just fascinating to sort of like go back. You know, yeah. I, I was listening to some of the stuff we did last January and it was like, oh, I forgot. First of all, this was in 2018. Second of all, there was some really great nuggets of stuff in there. And I don't recommend going back listening to the whole catalog unless you actually have the time but you actually have a drive across america yeah maybe this will be added to my <laughs> podcast and audible book list, list maybe but i just wonder if you have any moments from 2018 that sort of stood out to you from an interview perspective i do hmm, should please. i run down the entire list or just yeah, start with no, one no no please share so in no these are equally weighted in terms of my enjoyment, but I really enjoyed the podcast, Kyle, that you did that announced the People for Bike City ratings mm. and have enjoyed following along at conferences and webinars about how cities are utilizing that tool, getting to know that tool. And I think it was a great tactical way to move the conversation forward around what a low stress street really is. And looking at public space, and from my perspective, it even challenged me to look at a street that, yes, has a protected bike lane, may actually not feel comfortable from an, for an eight-year-old to an eight-year-old. And I think the city rating system for me was this sort of tool to really challenge and with backed up with data that a certain corridor was or was not low stress. And so I enjoyed those conversations. And as I've repeated just now, seeing it play out this year was really, really powerful for me. Wow. It's about to be a part of your daily life. And I picked it really <laughs> with no sort of like trying to, um, you know, talk good about my current and future employer. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So besides, besides that, uh, what else? So interviewing Jed Weeks and Liz Cornish with Bike More. It's always a delight to talk to them. It was fantastic to have them both here on the podcast, the work that Baltimore continues to do. They just passed a law. They just passed legislations with a complete streets policy that Bike More and Liz and Jed and their team, you know, blood, sweat, and teared created at Legislation Baltimore. And so that was really fantastic. Um, I really enjoyed talking to Katie Graves and Brett Hunter, um, part of the Like Writing a Bicycle Art Collective, around particularly just their work on challenging the concept of creative placemaking, that place already exists and the people that live there, you know, do interact with it with space in a positive way. Barb Chamberlain. Chamberlain? Chamberlain. Barb? I th yeah, I'm Chamberlain. I, I'll give you a accent pass, I think. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, our most recent episode, it was such a delight to have her. And I've been thinking a lot about just what it means to work for public office and how it can either negatively and in Barb's standpoint, positively affect her entire career project, um, projections and just really 
understanding that if you want to work with all people, you need to understand all people, even if you don't agree with them. Mm-hmm. And then finally, Michelle with Jarrett Walker Associates. Mm-hmm. I think she's so a crazy, crazy smart around what transit means for a city, how data is a part of that, but also really encouraging public dialogue around things that can be wonky and are definitely not terribly sexy. And so those are my top episodes. Wow. Yeah, we've got a lot of overlap there. Um, I would add in just a couple other little things to that because I listened to all of these last night. Um, (laughs) So like early on in the year, we did a little episode about electric bicycles with Morgan Lomely of People for Bikes and Dolly in New York City looking at sort of you know the the rise of this new technology and the growth in the u.s but you know some of the racial injustices that have come with that particularly in new york city around the targeting of immigrant delivery workers using e-bikes there um it's a a really interesting sort of that that episode in particular offers sort of like the two positions sort of poised side by side and i think it it was really interesting to know Mm -hmm. because a lot of our discussions this year talked about the rise of new technology and what's our what is our responsibility as advocates what's our responsibility as community members what is our responsibilities as leaders in the bike space when it comes to technology solving problems for people living across this country? And I'm I'm saying solving problems with like air quotations here. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of discussion about that because we saw a ton of new stuff hit the streets this year. I mean, they, in the middle of the year, in the summertime, I don't nobody if we had started this in january and said hey kyle and sarah there's going to be like a million scooters on the streets by june we would have been like nobody's going to use a scooter yeah my six-year-old uses a scooter um and you know lo and behold we're all using scooters now um there's there are things that were happening this past year and i think that 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 e-bike discussion from last january sort of paints the entire portrait of the questions that we should be asking in one episode. One of my favorite episodes of the whole year, this was this was super nerdy, but we talked with um, Bill Schulteis and Rebecca Sanders of Tool Design Group and talking about sort of this paper they had written about the history of the Ashto bicycle design mm. guides. And oh what, my gosh. Right. Yes. That was this, that, that was, one. that was this past year and talking about sort of like how privileged white men, you know, made it, yeah. made it possible to create this, the built environment that we have today and sort of, you know, the powers and the agency that sort of went into that creation. And it's, you know, the Ashto guide is super nerdy and this is like a discussion about how the super nerdy guide got just you know created and what influenced that but you know the discussion about education the discussion around you know who are we designing streets for i thought was just one of my favorite moments that we had this year i would agree we also had some really amazing guests working at a community level. You know, we talked, you you and I both talked to some folks from Orange Mound, the neighborhood in Memphis. Yeah. Uh, we had Dwayne Jones and Brittany Thornton on offering, you know, different perspectives on, you know, that particular neighborhood and, and how bicycling and transportation and mobility are factoring into the work that they're doing, organizing community members, taking action. You know, those were really great episodes. Uh, we even had, there was an episode... 
that you weren't able to make, and we had a guest host, our friend Chris Johnson. Uh, Chris was working in San Jose at the time with uh, cow walks, so doing a lot of pedestrian advocacy. And so it was sad that you had missed that episode because you're really into walking. Walking is sexy. But, you know, Chris and I had some really interesting discussions, particularly around this this rise of technology since he was living sort of in, in Silicon Valley uh, at the time. And, you know, I'll just say there's two more episodes, two or three more later in the year that I thought were really amazing. Uh, one of those was, you know, sort of the uh, having Rich Neiman from the Neiman Collaborative talking about the new messaging research people for bikes had just commissioned and the results of that. I'm still thinking every single day about what that actually mm-hmm. means, how we implement that. Uh, we've gotten some really amazing feedback from the discussion around parking that we had with Martha Ruskowski, um, you know, talking about the ways in which parking is actually influencing a lot of decisions being made in cities, but nobody's really addressing parking. We're all trying to influence the decisions outside of touching parking because it's this sort of sacrosanct epic part of cities. But I have to say, if I had to, you know, pick a favorite episode, um, I would say we hit a milestone this year, episode 100. Absolutely. We were together with our closest friends, supporters, listeners, family, you know, just having a great time in New Orleans celebrating 100 episodes of the Bike Nerds podcast. And I think that um, is a pretty amazing feat to have achieved uh, in just uh, three short years. I agree. That was a fantastic time and also really great conversations like the network of bike nerd supporters continue to impress and humble me in terms of their enthusiasm and just general intelligence and being fun to be around of course as well and they're fun to be around um sarah i i'm really looking forward to getting your feedback on this little montage that i've put together um it's got a it's got a clip from all of our guests from this year and I hope it sort of, you know, tells a, a little a little story about sort of the discussions that we had and, you know, some of the highlights that we had with our with our guests this year. I'm super looking forward to 2019. Um, I'm super excited to have you close by um, in close collaboration um, from this point forward. And uh, I'm going to raise my cup of coffee to you here this morning and say cheers. Cheers, Kyle. Happy holidays. Happy New Year. See you in 2019. That's a, do we do our, the tagline now? For over 25 years, Bike Fixation has been designing and manufacturing bicycle parking and infrastructure products to help cities, neighborhoods, businesses, and schools become more bike-friendly. Bike Fixation has collaborated with architects, city planners, and transportation engineers to ensure their products are some of the most durable, innovative, and intuitive infrastructure products around. And for as long as Bike Fixation has been making their products in Madison, Wisconsin, they've been standing shoulder to shoulder with many of the Bike Nerds guests and supporting efforts to make bicycling more safe, more accessible, and more fun. Why? Because Bike Fixation believes a better world includes more bikes. To stay up to date on what Bike Fixation is doing for bike parking and infrastructure, visit bikefixation.com slash bike nerds. 
And now we're back with the Bike Nerds podcast. The rise of of the TNCs first um, that kind of eclipsed, you know, any of the kind of any of the shared mobility that had come before um, in just in in its visibility in um, the way it changed the way people thought about how they got around and, you know, whether they needed to have their own car or whether they needed to drive. But, um, but I think more recently, I think the, the, the second generation of bike share with the dockless bike share is really um, taking, making it take off and making that conversation um, a lot more uh, take place in a lot more circles than, than just kind of the transportation nerds who might've been interested in car sharing and, and bike share 1.0 and those, those things. We have this critical view of the of the kind of industrial barons of of your. You know, we're really comfortable <laughs> looking at the the mistakes that the steel barons made, or the mistakes that the railroad barons made, or the mistakes that the auto. And increasingly, right, that like the mistakes or the or the self interest served by the auto industry. Mm. But now we have this new kind of we have an industry that is that is. Uh, setting the the transportation and, and I think largely like our cultural agenda, right? In terms of Silicon Valley and 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 you know our Facebooks and our 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 Elon Musks and our Googles and all these organizations, and we have somehow we're like not able to resist this temptation to be like think this time's going to be different, like to think like mm-hmm. oh they really like there is sort of this utopian idea about how technology and, and, and the internet and this sort of connectivity is going to save all of our problems. And I, and it just is echoes, right? It's totally echoes of, of how we talked about the auto industry in the fifties and sixties. And then years down the road, you look at all the concessions that our cities made and our, and our, and our regulatory frameworks made to uh, you know, expediency, like business expediency. And you go, Holy crap. Like, <laughs> we gave away the shop, like just to, you know, to keep these, to appease all these, these barons. And I'm not anti, you know, I'm not, I have to be careful about being too critical about the, the industry here, obviously, but like we, you know, we got to learn this at some point that, that they're not, there's not like just some inherent like altruism to like, you know, all the PR around, around the internet and, and, and connectivity and these things like, making the world better is, is PR and really venture capitalism is setting the agenda the same way it kind of always has. And like, how do we, how do we break this sort of rhetorical investment in utopianism of, of, of like in industrial barons or technological barons at this point? And I've been doing bikes for a long time and I love bikes and I understand a lot of the dynamics around bikes, but When you look at the slightly broader universe around bikes and everything we want to do, one of the big barriers is parking. When agencies, advocates go in to put in protected bike lanes on the road, on most of our streets, every bit of that curb space, every bit of the street space from curb to curb is already being used buy somebody for something and it's mostly cars. And so carving out that space for bikes means often that you, you do need to have to take space from cars. You don't like it to be a zero sum game, but sometimes it is. And so either cities take away travel lanes, which is actually easier or they take away parking. I was really struck by, um, the USDOT secretary's quote in 1973. 
Now, should bikeways be designed to accommodate a smaller number of people moving at the maximum rate of speed achievable by the bicyclists over long distances, or should they be designed to accommodate the maximum number of people willing to travel for shorter trips? You know, and I really concluded that our inability to answer that question and to struggle with that question has really held us up. And it's something we've got to kind of discuss head on of what are we trying to achieve in cities? Are we trying to achieve uh, streets to train for the next triathlon? Or are we trying to create a system of transportation so people can get around and whatever's the most efficient mode to, to get somewhere? And, and in cities, that's often the bicycle. Um, for short trips. And I, I think we've got to kind of, I think we need to kind of ask this question a little louder um, to the public and kind of make this a point of conversation, I, I think, moving forward to kind of come to some agreement on this question. People like to ride their bike, but for years and years, um, it just wasn't an option. If, you're, if your daily commute to work is more than three miles, I would say, it wasn't an option. If you didn't have a safe place to ride your bike uh, to the grocery store, to you know wherever you play, to work, um, you didn't ride it. So the combination of better places to ride and that small motor that takes a little bit of the effort out of bicycling makes electric bikes much more appealing. So as I mentioned before, a lot of people are buying them who just haven't been cyclists their whole life. And so the greater pie of cycling participation is growing. Um, but they're great for people who, for example, my father has a bad back and would love to cycle and, and lives in an area with a ton of bike paths um, and bought an e-bike. And he'll call me up and, and tell me that he felt like he was floating on air riding this e-bike. Um, myself, I, I'm a lifelong cyclist, but I have a one-year-old and a three-year-old and I live on a hill. So um, it's hard to carry those people up the hill in a chariot and uh, with an e-bike, I can just strap them on the back. So um, you get people pretty broad in range, age range, and you get people pretty broad in, in physical abilities um, now able to ride a bike um, for, for transportation and recreation. When people get together and talk to each other about how expensive real estate is and they can't buy a house and apartment rent's going up, I mean, what they're talking about is the scarcity of space. So... Of course, any anything we do in the public right of way to change the use of the space, whether it's from asphalt to sidewalk or sidewalk to tree plantings or or you know car lanes to bus lanes, that is the that is the great work of transportation planning. I think is getting over that inertia, uh, that resistance to reallocating shared space. An argument about what should happen on a particular street isn't really about. It can be about the traffic engineering in part, but it can also be about the change on the street in other ways, economic change, social change, demographic change. You know, people who have been invested in the street for a long time may not like what's happening on in many different parts of public life. And, you know, coming in and putting in a cycle track or a bike lane or adding bike share stations or whatever it is might just be one more thing on the pile of changes that makes them feel like they are no longer at home, like they no longer belong there. And that that's really difficult because there's no argument. I mean, I'm not going to argue with someone about that. That is true. You know, they, they grew up there. They love that place. They identify with it. And forces beyond their control are coming around and making it feel like it's not their home anymore. And certainly a cycle track 
would add to that for a lot of people. Poverty, it creates a whole different mindset. And so I'll never condemn someone for not valuing coming to monthly meetings. I will never, you know, um, speak down on someone or chastise anyone for what they don't do when they're living out poverty, because that's a full-time commitment. And so Juice is going to pick up, you know, the heavy burden of going to the people, making ourselves like, you know, very much so like open and, you know, very, very warm and, and inviting of people to come out just to try this new thing of being an engaged resident. Because people, you know, when you go back to your community, if you get the memo or if you get the the newsletter, or if you get the, the memorandum that there's something for you to act on as a engaged community member in your nice community, you probably like respond to it. But in Orange Mound, there are no updates, right? Things are happening. Kroger is closing. Um, uh, what is it? Um, Family Dollar is popping up. You got a wood stack company on your prime real estate of Park Avenue, and nobody asks you for your input. And so there's a whole different culture in Orange Mound where, you know, things that you would expect and hope would be the way that a community would be run and just would be the norms. Those aren't the norms. And so we can't expect people um, to, at the beginning, just be like, oh, Juice is here with these monthly meetings and we can come out and we can meet people and we can resource and network. You know, like that just isn't a priority for people. And so we've been um, building up our name and being very intentional about, you know, making this a trust organization so that as people hear about Juice, see Juice, like making a very visible campaign that they then have a peak interest to try juice. And I say try because, you know, just because maybe at the next meeting you see an increase in, in residents, that doesn't guarantee that that following meeting, all those people will be vested to come back. And so it's a, it's a continual, like, you know, love dance that we're doing to try and um, have people like really fall in love with the work of juice and seed themselves in it. I think this is really um, a lot of people's discomfort with this idea of, of uh, basically something that's a little bit novel and new in the street, and it's being driven by immigrant workers who are the early adopters. Um, you know, where, where we see electric bikes being legalized all over all over the country, 28 states have legalized them. You know, the early adopters are more privileged residents. Uh, in New York, the early adopters were immigrant workers. Uh, and they're seen as a threat. And I think what uh, is very alarming is that um, the way that they're described as a threat, this danger, being out of control, you know, uh, you know, looking at a lot of these comments, what I'm perceiving is that um, these it, electric bikes are a relatively new thing. So they're, uh, so I think people do have a very kind of um, a lot of anxiety around something new, um, but. I think this idea of these kind of like men of color who are immigrants on the street and they're on this electric bike and it get, maybe it goes a little bit faster, um, but you know they're trying to deliver your kind of the food that's being ordered by the same residents quickly. Um, and um, I think for the residents, there's a fear because they don't feel like they control these these people on the street, even though they're not causing any crashes or injuries at a high rate. Um, there, I think there's just palpable fear uh, of these workers, and that kind of matches on with what we know about how um, very white and segregated neighborhoods feel about you know men of color coming into our neighborhoods. So 
Uh, I, I don't think you can you can separate it from the issues of race and immigration on this at all. I think researchers like Charles Brown are doing an amazing job trying to open up the way we think about bicycling um, to think about things uh, not just like safety on the roadway, because that's super important, but also safety within communities. And some of the research and focus groups he has done have really helped to open my eyes to barriers to bicycling that don't typically show up in um, surveys of bicyclists that tend to be responded to by people who are, you know, middle classish, um, typically white, and um, you know, bicycle for choice, for example. So I think we are seeing, still seeing some shifting happening, and I hope that we continue to see that. I don't at all think we're near the end of that um, by bringing in other voices who can just represent perspectives that haven't always been recognized um, or given voice when we've been thinking about bicycle planning and, and design and what we want for our communities in those regards. That sentiment, you know, came out of um, b both sort of the, this idea of trying to value um, value people and not just sort of value ideas of what a neighborhood should be, but value um, the the things that are there. For us, it is it is about um, in in various ways trying to uh, figure out what what we're actually looking at um, as we go into a place. So that that means a lot of research. Um, it means a lot of um, sort of initial research from afar, but it means being on the ground and interviewing people and um, making a lot of connections. It's also important that we don't just decide, oh, we want to do a project in X city and then we make the project. We are we're um, doing projects where we've been invited and where we've been mm -hmm. cultivating relationships before we've gotten there. I would say absolutely the experience of representing people who don't agree with you on every issue shapes how I do my work now, and it has always shaped my work. I always also tell people that I am the fifth of six kids. That means I grew up in a big family, and we didn't always agree on everything. I'm one of the younger kids. I'm one of the little kids. So... You don't just tell people what to do when you're one of the little kids. You negotiate your way to success, and you still get the cookies. So I brought that kind of an experience into working with legislators who were mostly male, mostly much older than I was. Uh, I had three big brothers. So I was kind of used to that dynamic, I would say. And to be elected, I needed to listen to people and try to find our common ground. If you're doorbelling and somebody starts off by telling you, oh, I feel so strongly about A, B, and C, and you know that you are 180 degrees away on A, B, and C. If you can listen for the underlying shared value and say, well, what about D, E, and F? Here's where we are in, in sync on D, E, and F. So you're always looking for that teeny tiny overlap of the Venn diagram in politics. And then that became how I would do community relations, how I would try to work for whatever it might be on the bike advisory board or anything I was working on really was there has to be some common ground. If you can see that other people have their story and you don't know what you don't know about their story, then you can, I think, work with them in a more compassionate and respectful way. I have the time to do anything that is needed. So when people organize rides or people have events or people open parks or trails or whatnot, 
I try to be there. Um, I can just pretty much always say yes to that. I make things happen. Um, I have a lot of people that I know. They are good meeting people, but they go to meetings and they love to meet to say they went to a meeting. I'm results oriented. So I like to uh, come up with a concept uh, or idea, but turn it into a plan. Ideas don't get anything. Plans turn to action and action makes stuff happen. I know people there sit up and they develop and they're pondering, they get input, they do research. I'm sort of like the guy that goes out and in the military field, you drop me down. You see somebody with a gunshot. I'm not going to ask him for his insurance card and ask him 50 questions and fill out this questionnaire. I'm going to apply pressure, a tourniquet, and we're going to fix this thing right here on the spot until we can get you to a better place. You know, we have a pop-up rides, you know. I kept asking people to ride, and I kept trying to put together a fleet, build some bikes. And it worked good for a couple of years, but eventually I found uh, a bike share that was getting rid of a fleet in Chicago, and I purchased 30 cruisers. We typically do like a four-mile ride. Um, we have people blocking off the streets, and I take them around, show them the, the neighborhood schools, the elementary, high schools, and uh, historical churches, and show them a few um, locations, like the tea shop I mentioned in the neighborhood Christian Center, the House of Orange Mound, and just uh, uh, highlight the growth in the neighborhood. Even took them by the, a new house that I built, a two-bedroom house and so forth, just to let them know there is some development coming. There's just one big idea, and the more you say it, the better off you are. And that's that everyone, everyone has peace on the road when everyone has a piece of the road. That's how you solve the problem. Everyone has peace on the road when everyone has a piece of the road. When everyone has a piece of the road, walkers know where they should be, bikers know where they should be, and cars know where they should be. There aren't unsafe conditions, and everybody can follow the law and be held accountable for it, and everybody can get to where they're going with the greatest safety and ease. Now, people are going to want to drag you down into a whole bunch of details of what if, what if, what if. You always want to pivot back to everyone has peace on the road when everyone has a piece of the road. This is really important in messaging. You have to, although it seems like a very simple phrase and it's very complex, it's going to be hard to do. You have to say this so many times that when you say it, you almost vomit. Like you almost vomit in your own mouth. And when that happens and you just can't say it anymore, that's when it finally sinks into the people out there and you have an effect. And you have to say it even more as you're gagging. And you only stop saying that when somebody comes up to you and, and you say, yeah, I'm working on bike infrastructure. And they say, you know what? We're only going to get peace on the road when everyone has a piece of the road. But one of the things I'm most proud of is that we've been able to maintain our voice, maintain our values in our voice, where we aren't afraid to call out bad behavior from opponents, or we aren't afraid to go head to head with people like the fire department. Um, we were, I think we're tough and we still have a seat at the table. And to me, that's probably the thing that I'm most proud of is that a lot of people perceive us as outsiders and activists and that we're just sort of rabble rousers. But 
I have, I'm in close collaboration with the director of DOT on, um, how to make public meetings go better. And, um, you know, we're working, we're, we're just invited to a lot of different tables in the city to help offer advice and to give insight. And we are, you know, we are respected as, um, people that both care about the city a lot and have really good ideas and, and, and vision for where we can go in the future. And I, I think that's something that a lot of people don't know about us and don't see all the time. Um, and it's something that I'm probably, um, it's something that I have to remind myself of when I do get a few haters <laughs> here and there um, that think I'm one way or not. But I, I am really proud of that. I'm proud that I, you know, people that are important and decision makers call me on the phone and ask my advice on things. And I'm, and even, and it still gives us room to, um, critique and push back when we think those same people are making poor decisions. And, it, and so far, um, it hasn't, you know, it, it might go through seasons where like, we're not getting those phone calls for a couple days or a week or two. Um, but overall we've maintained uh, and grown significantly. I think our influence in the city, certainly since I started and, um, that's a result of a really strong team. That's a result of, a huge engaged membership and that's a result of of people in leadership positions and even people with opposing perspectives being open to including us in conversations even difficult ones communities of color well, some, you know, we'll talk a lot about social justice and that, um, you know, fighting for social justice and that people on the other side are like, well, people just need to follow the law and that the law is what they want to uphold. And that we see that we be, you know, like in the history of the U.S., we have had laws that were unjust and that created a lot of the conditions um, that we have right now. Uh, and so when we talk about justice, it's, it's this like ideal that we have that is greater than the law and that the law should always, um, be pushing to get closer to that ideal of what is just instead of the laws that like people and men make or have made to benefit them personally. Good grief. As a nation, could we not have firmly forever rejected Nazi ideology? I was on Bike Nerds before it was cool. The Bike Nerds podcast is a joint production of the Bike Nerds, Sarah, and Kyle, and the OEM Network based in Memphis, Tennessee. For more information, visit theoemnetwork.com slash thebikenerds. Want to nerd out more? Find us on the web at thebikenerdspodcast.com, on Twitter at thebikenerds, and on Facebook, The Bike Nerds Podcast. Drop us a note or recommend another bike nerd to have on the show by sending us an email at thebikenerdspodcast at gmail.com.